This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we are happily to be joined by David Thielen. He is the co-founder of Windward and is an author uh, talking about business leadership. Business leadership was one of the things we talk the most about, I think, on this show. And so we're going to learn about his business journey and his entrepreneurship. His book is titled, I Don't Know What I'm Doing, How a Programmer Became a Successful Startup CEO. So this should be uh, interesting and and very good. So welcome, David, to the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you. So let's get let's jump right into the deep end of the pool. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your book and why you wrote it? Um, I wrote it because for two big reasons, and they both had to do when I was making my way through as a CEO and so forth, and. One of them is that being able to pay it forward so to help others that when they're going to go through these same things, because an awful lot of what I went through talking to other CEOs at startups, uh, we all tended to hit an awful lot of similar things. Um, you know, as they say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. The you know, from startup to startup, there's uh, an awful lot of rhyming between the problems and being able to pay it forward to help others. Um, by and large, I don't know that I could say help others avoid the problems I hit, but to get through them quicker, easier, less painfully. Um, but the other thing that's a biggie is that an awful lot of people as CEOs, um, including myself at times, question we think we're doing a lousy job and we're looking at where we failed. We're looking at where we made mistakes and so forth. And an awful large part of it is explaining people, no, this is as good as it gets that if you're getting it right half the time, you're doing awesome. And so it's also to get that across of you will make all these mistakes and more, you'll make your own, you'll do things that you'll look back and go, why did I ever let this go on so long? And in doing all that, um, we, the company truly was um, built by my wife and me. She went unwillingly. Um, uh, but we grew it from just the two of us. We never got any funding and we grew it. I'm not allowed to do any numbers because the company that acquired it, um, a prize, um, but we grew it to a pretty nice size and sold it for a really nice chunk of change. And um, 
that ended up being nice because with no investors, every penny from that sale went to me and then to options that went to the employees and the board members. So I had people two or three years out of college, boom, school loans paid off. I had people that were, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, out of school, and whatever mortgages paid off. And so truly life changing for all of them. What was the nature of the business? What was the, what did you sell? One of the most boring software products on the planet is what's called document generation. So you got a template, you've got data, you merge it in and you then create the output. So banks use That's not the most boring one I've heard, but yeah, that's pretty boring. I had a buddy of mine, he did, um, he did uh, billing systems for municipal utilities. Uh, and he was like, the, all those systems were coded on such old, the systems were so old, he was one of like 15 guys in the country who could work on them sort of thing. So like, talk about job security, yeah. you know? Um, and he was like, I always asked him, I said, you know, you probably could make a lot more money at this. He's like, yeah, but this company is really chill. I can leave early, pick up my kids from school. They had great age children at the time. It's like, I can pick up my kids from school. I can work from home, you know? So it's like, yeah, I could make more money, but I'm super flexible. And it was just kind of like, it was one of those niche things that he kind of literally went from, you're going to laugh. He went from day laborer, <laughs> won the lottery for $50,000. Mm -hmm. His wife made him go to school for programming. And that's how he got into doing that. And so literally from like, like he grew up like, you know, barely graduated high school sort of situation, was working in concrete, gets a good scratcher, and then become, gets into the super niche programming thing. It's a, just, you know, but, but very like, who th would think about that? Like, like you don't think about the system that generates your water bill, but my buddy makes sure that it generates your water bill. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah, and if the bills crazy. aren't being generated, then everybody's going to know about it. Yes, exactly. It's one, of, it's one of those systems in life where we, when it's working properly, we never think about it. But the minute it breaks, everybody's thinking about it. <laughs> so, yeah. no, but I mean, document generation, that's, you said banks use it, use it a lot. I imagine for loan paperwork and such. Uh, uh, bank portfolio statements. We had ones that generated, again, not allowed to say names, but, you know, in the top 10 that were generating all their loan documents from it. Um, one that was interesting is it, our software was not cheap. It was expensive because it was by far the best one out there. And I was talking to the person at one of the banks and I said, I have for the listener, his customer is anyone that got a bailout in 2008. That was his customer. <laughs> but we made a couple of large sales in 2008 as they were trying to fix things and they needed to, you know, we were the way to fixing it fast. But um, one of them <laughs> paying us just boatloads of money to create their portfolio statement. And I mm. said, you know, I appreciate it. You're a wonderful customer, but how much money you're paying us to do this? And he goes, for the first time in their life, they were getting what they wanted. They actually got oh. what they wanted. And it's funny, you know, they got this font up here and this typeface and this little thing and this thing over here. And that just was worth so much to them. Uh, HR departments love it. The amount of letters generated by HR departments um, is just unbelievable. 
And so, you know, lots of them, real estate, I'll bore you with pretty much anybody that generated paper that had money. No, I mean, that's, that's really cool. I always love, because I have done a lot of business, but my stuff has always been in media, publishing, performance, the arts. I've worked in performance, performing arts most of my life, um, all this type of thing. And I am, and I work in an industry with no money. Um, And so I'm always fascinated by like, people that make a lot of money in something that you would never think like you would never think of to go into that like you know like oh like yeah I guess that is a need but you would never kind of come up with it on your own sort of thing so with that all being said how did you come up with this idea how did it occur to you to like you know what these companies need document generation (laughs) so I was at a startup and the CFO said they needed the following reports. And they're trying to explain to me. And I finally said, wait, just bring up Excel or Word and create the output. It's not the actual output, right? Just create what you want us generating, put fake numbers in and everything. So he did that. He gave it to me. And I'm looking at it going, all right, now why can't I just push a button and say, this is what I want it to look like. And this is this number. And this is this number. And that's as far as it went. Mm. That startup failed, went to another startup about nine months into there, the same thing. And it's like, all right, we need this, this, this. And I'm thinking, why can't I just put it across? Well, then the dot-com crash happened at the same time I was um, diagnosed with cancer. And the startup Mm. I was at, along with everybody else, crashed. And... um, the way they cure cancer is they come this close to killing you in every cell of your body. And so the day the treatment's over, surprise, you're still in really bad shape. So, um, you know, you slowly get better and slowly get better. Well, I hit the point where I could work for three or four hours in a day. No company's going to hire me for that. But I was going nuts not working. And I'd always had this idea. So I did it for therapy to keep me busy. And then I get the whole thing done and I'm thinking, you know, I'm probably not the only one who's wanted this. So early, early, early days of Google. And I did, you know, all the things you call SEO nowadays, didn't have a name for it, but I did that. The link building didn't have a name for that moment, but I went and did that and, you know, was selling it off my website. And I can still remember one morning um, whenever a sale was made, I did a blind carbon copy to my wife and I suddenly heard her screaming out there and it was a bit small amount by later standards, but it was a fair amount of money that had just come in from a bank that had ordered it. Wasn't expecting it, but they had looked at it, used it, decided they want it, put in the order. And at this point I was able to work full time, which worked for another startup. And we had this fair amount of money just rolling in that was free money every week, every week, every month. And then the startup I was at, I didn't think it was going to make it. And it did fail about nine months later. And I swear my wife said this to me. She swears she did not, but I swear she did. When I said I was going to have to look at working elsewhere, she goes, well, this is doing okay. Why don't you see if you can make a go of it? And so every time we were on the edge of dying and, oh, my God, how are we going to make it? And this was the biggest mistake. 
we would point our fingers at each other because she would say, I decided to go make a go of it. And I would tell her, no, you were the one that said we should go make a go of it. And, <laughs> you know, thankfully we did. And it all worked out really, really well. But um, there were two times that I remember that we truly thought we were going to have to shut the doors. Um, and we made it through. And, and this is in the book. But... Um, are we allowed to swear on this show? Absolutely. Okay. There is a phrase that is so common in Silicon Valley that it's just done as WFIO. We're fucked. It's what are your top three things you would tell new startup founders about leadership? There's an awful lot of stuff that on the one hand is trite and on the other hand is true. And you know, there's not value in my repeating stuff that they're probably hearing from a million other people. So I would say the number one thing I would say is that you will blow it a boatload of the time. And that's expected. It's normal. There's no way around it. Everyone does. That doesn't mean if you keep working, you'll be successful. I mean, you might blow it and fail where someone else would be successful you might do really good and just the product is never going to make it, but you are going to fail a lot. You are going to make an immense number of mistakes. You're going to wait too long to fire people. You're going to, you know, the flip side of that is you're going to hire people that in hindsight, it was a dumb thing to do at the time. Um, but it's just, you are going to make an immense number of mistakes and realize that's part of the job. Don't let it get you down. I would say the number two piece of advice I would give is to step back and look at it holistically, for lack of a better word, and try and figure out where you should be going and what you should be doing as a company. Everybody else in the company is very focused on making what you've decided happened or what they've decided, you know, it all works out. But everybody else is focused inward. Um, there, there are the rare ones that do look outward and listen to them. Boy, are they valuable. They're not always right, but boy, are they valuable. But you are the one person whose job at the company is to spend when you can, you never get the time, but when you can over half your time figuring out where you should be going. And where you should be going is not little tweaks on what you have. Where you should be going is with all this and with where the market is and with what people say they want and with what people really want and with what people actually need, which are three very different things at times, what all you should be doing and how should you be getting there and how do you make it all work? Yeah. Well, no, that's what it, I, I, I'm... I, I've I've recently taken on a new a new sort of um job. And uh what do you think is the hardest thing between like almost starting a new idea and then operationalizing it? Um because that's a big leap. And I'm currently in the middle of it, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. In one sense, the biggest thing is what is the product? You know, is anybody going to actually buy, you know, be interested in buy it? But your biggest thing in operationalizing it is who you hire. 
what you do, that there are two things that as CEO that are impactful, who you hire and where you see as where the company should go. Mm. And nothing else aside from those two things matter. Now there's a million things that go into that and who you hire includes how you manage them, how you guide, how you set everything up, um, you know, how you determine are they the right person in the job and so forth. But operate, you know, in the guts of operationalizing, you don't do any of that. You hire the people that do that. Yeah. And each time you're stepping yeah. up to do something, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny you should say that because our our my the founder I'm working for right now is always harping on people, process, and systems. He probably tells me that at least once a day, if not more. Um <laughs> And uh, this also is the first time I've been in a more executive level position. So I'm I'm used to doing everything. The Cameron Journal has been a solo thing. I'm just starting to take on people. I have built my everything from nothing, always. And so I'm used to doing it all. He has banned me from doing things. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard because I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll just do it, take care, whatever have you. He's like, no, we have a staff of 23. I have three people who can do that for you. And right. it's 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 really hard for me. I'm used to doing it all. Um, it, it's it's really hard to, you know, be like, well, it, I could get out and do this. But instead, I'm writing an email and hoping that someone will get it and understand it as well as I do and pull it off. It's um that's that's been a that's been a, that's been a struggle for me. Um, I've I've never had, had to do that before. Right. And it was this was a very hard thing for me to learn also. Um, although I think on this thing I did better than most do. Um, in fact, my wife says I'm the king of delegating. So, <laughs> you know, I say I could have done better. She thinks I did fine. But if when you send that email consistently, the for a given person, when they receive it, they're not doing it as well as you would. You've got the wrong person there. The answer is not for you to go do it. The answer is not for you to guide them step by step. The answer is for you to see if you can get them to step up their game and do it. My view is people shouldn't do it the same as I did it. My view is people should have outcomes that are better than there would have been if I did it. And in a lot of cases, that's doing something quite different. And I mean, I think I think that's one of the one of the things I've learned in the couple months I've had on the job now um, is there's a big difference. Like I said, I've always worked in in the arts or the performing arts or in publishing or media. I've never worked in a company bigger than a team of 50. Um, and my my founder I'm working for comes out of big corporate America. Uh-huh. The big boys. He worked for Countrywide in 2008. And I can say that because he did came on the show and we did an interview about it. Um, and so all this everything. And so I I can I'm he and I and this other fellow are in a partnership. The other fellow comes out of construction. I come from media and the performing arts. He comes from corporate America. And I always say, I said, part of the shift for me has been a mindset shift from like scrappy startup small team to my founder, who's like General Motors. He knows how to make a hundred thousand of something cheaply, efficiently and get it to a dealer. And I'm like trying to learn how to do that. Not there yet. (laughs) But it's, it's just a total mindset shift from 
you know, a small team doing something cool and interesting that people are into to, you know, mass production and mass adoption. Did I lose you? No. Oh, good. Um, so I for your next question. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I was about to say, and that was a statement, not a question, Cameron. So ask the man a question. So my my question is this um in terms of in terms of scaling, what was the hardest part about going from the sort of side hustle to you know getting to a place where you could sell this company off to somebody? All right, so I read this thing that was a rule of thumb from somebody that I think is spot on accurate. And that's every time the number of employees you have triples, your entire system approach, everything is no longer um, correct for what you're doing. And that's from one to three. And then it happens again at three to 10 and then from 10 to 30. And then instead of going 90, a hundred and so forth um, to make it a little easier on it. But yeah, when it went from me to three people, I had to let go of some stuff. When it was at 10 people, I had to be looking at stuff at a bit of a remove. And it's it's a really hard thing of I exactly how am I going to measure how this group is doing. And you've got to figure that out and as you get more people you are getting it more of a remove and it's critical that you figure out what where and so forth and we brought in probably at about 18 20 people you know it's not a hard pass if you didn't do it at 10 people you wait till 30. um we brought in the fact that we did quarterly business reviews they're normally done just for sales team but we did it for all the departments looking back and then we did i forgot the name of them we then did um we actually did the forward looking ones at the end of the quarter because we couldn't do the backward ending ones until about 10 days after the quarter after all the numbers got done for sales so we'd look forward to what are we going to do for the next quarter and as we got near the end of the year what are we going to do for the next year and it was the entire executive team together doing that for every department. And granted, when we got deep into where are we going with development, okay, the finance, um, the CFO didn't have that much to add, but I wanted her there because she had occasional things that were brilliant. And when we were talking through sales, same thing for development, not a whole lot to add, but when they did, they were spot on. And it was also real valuable of getting all the pieces together of um, these things have to work with each other. Um, we're going to create this new functionality. Well, marketing's got to market it. Sales has got to see value in it to sell it and so forth. Um, in a perfect world, you could do the end of the quarter and then the looking forward, but uh, it doesn't work out that way because you got to get the uh, total numbers. But it actually was valuable to go first. Uh, let's look forward about where we're going to go next. And then, all right, let's look at how we did in the last quarter and get it together and stuff. Yeah. Well, even if you don't have the numbers yet, if something has gone terribly wrong, you usually know oh, by that time. Yeah. Like, 
So if you're, if your forward look includes, well, this is a problem over here, you already know. The numbers will confirm it for you, but you already well know what the trouble is. So that's no, that's 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 very good. So how was it writing? How was it writing the book? Um, did you have like was it a difficult thing to to do? Did you struggle along with it, or did it just come right out? No, but the thing is, it's my fourth book, and ah. I have written an immense number of blogs. I've written, um, you know, at work, there was a bunch of stuff that had to be written. There was a fair amount of the marketing uh, collateral I wrote. There was a lot of stuff you write on just, this is where I want to go to the company. Here is why. Here is how I see it. Um, You know, different people do this different ways. And my way of doing all that would be to write, and then we would talk about it after everybody could read the stuff. And because I was the CEO, everybody else's way on all that stuff was to write. And then uh, uh, we looked at it. And um, I hired an editor because I turned to my wife and said, you're going to edit for me, right? And she said, hell no. And Because <laughs> um, she did on my previous book and made it a lot better. And so I can just sit down in the morning and boom, I can generally bang out a chapter. Now, I can't do that every morning. And if it wasn't flowing in the morning, I would just put it aside and do it the next morning. But um, I could do that. And then occasionally the guy was the editor who said, this is crap, do it again, fine. And I would take his advice and do it again. And then other times he would just, you know, work with it and make it better. Mm. That's quite, quite, that's quite, quite impressive. Um, a lot of, um, and you've already written a lot and have done a lot of writing, so I can see how it's easier. Most of the people I have on, this is like their first writing project, and so it's always, you know, kind of this big ordeal that they're kind of glad is over, and, you know, and why would anybody ever do this all the time and all this type of thing? And I'm like, well, some of us enjoy it. It's weird. Um, so that's that's really that's really great. So um, so what what are you going to do next? What's next on the agenda? All right. So I left the company. And there really wasn't, they wanted me to stay, but it was, I'm not doing anything. It's, I got all the different departments plugged into the appropriate departments there. And the development group was large enough. They saw the development group working to me, but I had one person reporting to me, They, you know, my VP of development. And um, it's also, you know, when, when you're the CEO and you hold the vast majority of the stock, you truly are God over the company. There is, aside from my wife, there's nobody that can fire me. I mean, I guess the board the board did demote me at one time. There's a funny story about that that's in the book, but then I got promoted back. Um, and, you know, so being the final decision and everything is suddenly being over in a place where you're going you know, this is what I want and here's why and everything. And then this person has this idea and this person has that. And they have their own system and they're a bigger company. So they are taking their time. And we made decisions fast, even by the terms of a small company. And it was, they don't need me. There's not really a spot for me anymore. And I don't really fit into this. So I left. And then I was going nuts and I'd gotten advice from a number of people I respect highly. Uh, don't you dare do anything for six months? Absolutely not for three. So I waited three months and then I went to start another idea with a guy who had worked for me at Windward, but had left earlier so he could work with me. It was, he wasn't under the, you know, can't 
um, steal any money. And um, we tried it, and after about four months going down it, we're both going, it's funny, I went to him, I said, I don't think this is a good idea. And he goes, yeah, he didn't think so either. And then I realized I was only going back there because that's what, that was my life. Um, not just the last 17 years, but I'd been at startups forever before then. And it was, I'm 66 at the time, 67 now. I need to do something different. So I made the decision, I am not going to work at a startup. And so I you know, started on the book, but I called around. I've always been very into politics, talked to a lot of people, uh, ended up talking to the chairperson of the Democratic Party for the state of Colorado. And she's talking about some stuff, but she mentioned, she goes, but that doesn't pay very well. And I'm going, Morgan, I don't care about getting paid. I got enough money. I'll have more money when I die than I am now. And she goes, you don't care about getting paid? I go, no. She led up. We had a 45-minute conversation about, well, what could you do? And there's this and there's this. So I am writing an application for the Democratic Party. And it's going to be managing all the volunteers, both from the campaign side and the volunteer side. And um, it talking to the various people I know relatively high up in the party, they say that it should be good to move the vote a half a percent in every bloody competitive race that's happening across the country. And, you know, doing something where on election night, anybody who wins by under half a percent, is that due to me? No, it's due to everybody doing their part. But is that due in part to me? Yeah. And boy, that'll make me feel good. Oh, I didn't know you were in Colorado. That's where I grew up. <clears throat> so, oh, where? I grew up in our in Arvada. My my dad works at NCAR in Boulder. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah, um, I went to school to you and Windward was a Boulder company. Yeah, I, I went to school out in Greeley at University of Colorado. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was a lot. Now I live in Seattle. I'm about to move to the tri-state area on the East Coast. So um, the moving boxes have already started to be filled. But no, that's really cool. <clears throat> um, yeah, no, I, that's, volunteer coordinating is, I think, in, especially in politics, I used to be in Colorado politics on the Republican side and worked in the state Senate and all this type of thing and and then um, left the GOP in 2012 and became a Democrat. Um, volunteer coordination is one of the biggest and most important things in any campaign mm -hmm. because um, it's the, you know, getting people knocking on doors. It's getting people standing in front of grocery stores signing petitions um, or getting petitions signed rather. Um, all this type of thing that is absolutely massive, but so crucial, especially if the district is competitive. Yeah. Um, and um, and sometimes even if it's not competitive, I mean, Lauren Boebert managed to almost lose the Colorado fifth, which is just hilarious. Um, I'm like, madam, you won by 300 votes. Calm down. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, and so, uh, so, I mean, it, it is a huge thing. So that's a great, I think that's right up your alley though. Yeah. I think that's perfect. That's wonderful. So th that is a great new horizon. I think, I think you're going to do fantastic at that. So um, how, how's it, I know you've probably just started, but how does it feel so far? Um, it takes me back to the old days. It, and 
the technology stack, I'd say about three-fourths of it is new stuff I have to learn, and one-fourth of it has changed so much that I have to learn it, with the exception of cascading style sheets that haven't changed at all and are still awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I, I took two years off from this business and worked and paid off credit cards and made money and all this type of thing. And when I came back, it felt like I was starting over because I literally had like a, oh, I still have my website and I have a file with my email list and that's it, you know, sort of thing. And and getting kind of spinning everything back up, it was like that as well. So I I definitely, I definitely get that. So it's well fantastic. Well, this is the part of the show where we do plugs so people can find out where to buy your book and where to find you online. So uh, let us know where we can buy your book and where we can find you online. The only place you can buy the book is a Kindle book on Amazon. And um, if you put in, I don't know what I'm doing, you get a million hits before you get to my book. So right. the best thing to do is put in my name, which is David Thielen. And the last name is T-H-I-E-L-E-N. And then that'll get you to the book on Amazon. I have a blog against this on Substack, and it's ceobook.substack.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you for one more thing. Go to YouTube and put in Cubicle War. And there's a couple of different things, but the main one you'll probably get up, and you should, is by these two guys, Barats and Beretta, and there's two videos. Those guys were brilliant. I went to them and said, I want something hilarious that mentions Windward at the end paid them to do that and then it went so well paid them to do the second one so from the media point of view that you have i was the money and the initial idea and they were the brilliant people that did it but it is just absolutely hilarious you know that's that's great no thank you so much for coming on the cameron journal podcast this has been so educational well thank you for having me all for this episode of the cameron journal podcast thank you so much for listening visit us online at camerondjournal.com we're on facebook twitter and instagram and i love to talk to my followers and listeners so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at cameron cowan on twitter and we'll see you next time on the cameron journal podcast